Hello, welcome to episode four of Government Girl. In this episode, I will be providing an overview of the filibuster, including its constitutional connections, a brief history, transitions into the modern era, and possibilities for reform. I would also like to take a moment to thank Facebook friends Bridget McCullough, Jake Gilliland, and Jen Hickey for the suggestion for this episode. Remember, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, you can tweet me at govgirl614. Okay, so let's start with constitutional connections. The Constitution says nothing about the filibuster. Article 1, Section 3 gives the Senate the power to set up their rules for organizing and figuring out how how they're going to run their business. And so the ability to have unlimited debate that results in the filibuster is born out of that piece of the Constitution. As far as what the framers would have thought about the filibuster, if they could see it in modern use, there are a couple of thoughts I have on this. One is that they never intended to have legislation passed by a supermajority, which uh, is basically a supermajority is going to be anything over a simple majority. Uh, But in most cases, we're talking about um, two-thirds of the Senate. There are provisions in the Constitution that do provide for a supermajority in specific circumstances. For example, convicting the impeachment of a president requires two-thirds vote in the Senate. And since they didn't apply those supermajority provisions to everyday legislation, it stands to reason that they intended for day-to-day legislation to be passed by simple majority. The filibuster in its modern use effectively requires a supermajority to pass anything. And we'll talk in a few minutes about how we got there. Secondly, the problem with the Articles of Confederation that led to them being scrapped in favor of writing the Constitution, or one of the problems, was that having a supermajority to do business was ineffective and inefficient. It was just too difficult to get anything done under the Articles of Confederation, which required two-thirds of the states to be on board before passing any legislation. Alexander Hamilton outlines these troubles in Federalist Paper Number 22. And since they were hyper-aware of the problems of a supermajority needing to pass legislation, one could reason that they did not intend to need a supermajority to pass legislation in the Constitution as they wrote it. So let's talk about where the filibuster comes from. First of all, a quick definition. A filibuster is a delay tactic to prevent voting on a particular issue. In 1789, the Senate passed one of their first organizing resolutions that essentially sets up the rules for that particular Senate session. And in that session, they had a rule that you could vote to end debate 
and then you took a vote to vote. Later on, Aaron Burr, vice president, also president of the Senate, comes in and says, hey, isn't this kind of redundant? Do we really need to vote to end debate and then vote to take a vote? Can we just get rid of one of those things? And the Senate agreed, not right away, but a few years after Burr left office, uh, the Senate did, in fact, change their rules to eliminate the vote to end debate. This set the stage for at least the potential for a filibuster. So the filibuster wasn't actually created out of a specific rule. Uh, the Senate never passed a rule to allow for unlimited debate, but by removing the vote to end debate, they effectively handed unlimited debate time to senators. Um, this was a theoretical possibility for several decades in that, again, it wasn't something that was intentionally created. And for a while, I don't think anybody really realized the potential that was there to use that um, to delay legislation. And then mid-century, we start to see some threats of the filibuster. And we start to see how politicians can kind of fine hone the filibuster to work to their advantage. But nevertheless, for the duration of that century, uh, we really don't see the filibuster used very often. We see a few threats, but nothing really coming to fruition in, in utilizing it. Then in 1917, at the urging of President Woodrow Wilson, because the Senate was blocking him from arming merchant vessels during World War I, a new rule was passed to invoke cloture. Cloture is a way of ending debate. And the new rule uh, stated that two-thirds of the senators voting were needed to end debate and move to a vote. Ironically enough, the first successful cloture debate happened a couple of years later at the end of World War I to end debate on the United States joining the Treaty of Versailles, something that Woodrow Wilson very deeply wanted. And ending debate resulted in a no vote by the U.S. Senate to join on to the Treaty of Versailles. In 1949, there was a small rule change Two-thirds of the entire Senate was now needed to invoke cloture rather than two-thirds of the senators that were present and voting. This made it a little bit more difficult. It meant that the entire Senate had to engage in order to invoke cloture, or at least two-thirds of it. In 1957, Strom Thurmond filibustered the Civil Rights Act. It remains the longest individual filibuster in history. He spoke for over 24 hours and famously quoted George Washington's farewell address. Then in 1959, in anticipation of more civil rights legislation in the 1960s, then President or uh, leader of the Senate, Lyndon Johnson, changed the rule back to two-thirds of those voting. So it made it a little bit easier to invoke closure in anticipation of filibusters coming from Southern Democrats on civil rights legislation. And that foresight paid off when a coalition of Southern Democrats filibustered the 
1964 Civil Rights Act for 75 hours. If you've ever seen images of senators sleeping on cots outside of Senate chambers during a filibuster, it was probably from this filibuster. This was the longest collective filibuster in history. The filibuster did eventually fail by a closure vote. And of course, the Civil Rights pa uh, Act passed. This image of senators holding the floor and holding these continuous debates and, you know, impassioned speeches, uh, images invoked by Mr. Smith goes to Washington. This was the era of the talking filibuster in which senators were required to hold the floor. They could not do anything else. They could not carry on any other Senate business or move any other legislation. Essentially, all other movements in the Senate stopped when a filibuster was happening. And it's called the talking filibuster because they were required to hold the floor. During this era of the talking filibuster, the filibuster was seen as a delay tactic, a way for senators who were in the minority, who didn't agree with legislation coming through, a way for them to delay and hopefully reach enough hearts and minds to be able to block the legislation or to talk the bill to death. It was also a way that they could bring attention to the public about uh, what the legislation was. This all changes, though, in 1970. In 1970, there were two significant rule changes, or one in 1970, one in 1975. In 1970, the Senate changed the rule that all Senate business had to halt during a filibuster and instead adopted the two-track system. This allowed senators to continue on with other Senate business, and they can even consider other bills on the floor of the Senate while a filibuster is happening. Under the two-track system, the senators are no longer required to hold the floor or to continue talking. The other rule that changed in 1975 it's not actually a rule change. It's a revert back to the two-thirds of the entire Senate. So at this time, that means 60, 60 votes needed. The combination of these two changes in the 1970s paves the way for the modern filibuster in which no practical requirement for extended debate or holding the floor exists anymore. So those famous images of impassioned senators giving speeches and trying to change minds and trying to kill a bill by talking it to death, that's not really the reality anymore. And since most senators now take their cues from their respective party leaders, we are in a position now where we effectively have to have a 60-vote supermajority to pass almost any bill. There are some exceptions that are not subject to uh, a filibuster like the budget, for example. But for the most part, most major legislation, you need a, an effective supermajority to get it passed. So let's talk about the modern filibuster. One thing we need to understand about the filibuster over the last 10 years or so is the nuclear option. I am going to attempt to explain the nuclear option. It's a pretty complicated parliamentary uh, procedure that I will attempt to explain 
in simple terms. The nuclear option is a way that a senator can overrule a standing rule in the Senate by a simple majority. When a leader raises a point of order that questions a certain rule, the presiding officer will then deny that point of order because there isn't two-thirds of the Senate to vote. However, that ruling by the presiding officer, which is the vice president, can be overturned by a simple majority vote, effectively allowing the senator to establish new Senate precedent and overturn a rule by simple majority. This is referred to as the nuclear option because it is a very clear twisting of Senate rules and their intentions. And it was thought that it should only be used in the most extreme last resort type of circumstances. However, we have seen the nuclear option used at least twice in the last two years. First by Senator Harry Reid in 2013 who eliminated the use of the filibuster using the nuclear option on all judicial nominees besides the Supreme Court. Then in 2017, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell used the nuclear option to remove the filibuster on Supreme Court nominees in order to get Neil Gorsuch confirmed. So it has been used to the advantage of both Democrats and Republicans in the last 10 years. More recently, in 2021, earlier this year, Mitch McConnell threatened a filibuster of the new organizing resolution if the new organizing resolution eliminated the filibuster. He argued that the filibuster lent greater deliberation and protections for the minority party. And he said that he would filibuster the organizing resolution if it included the, the elimination of the filibuster. He backed off of his threats to filibuster when two Democrats gave him assurances that they would not vote to support removing the filibuster in the organizing resolution. So that's the most recent news that we have on the filibuster. So let's talk about reforming the filibuster. There, of course, is the suggestion of completely eliminating the filibuster. Uh, some arguments against this most recently have come from Mitch McConnell. He says that the um, filibuster is a necessary mechanism of the Senate, that it provides for greater deliberation, and that it promotes bipartisanship and also protections for the minority party, particularly if the majority has a very narrow majority like the Democrats do right now. Technically, they don't have a majority. Uh, they have 48 members uh, and then two members that are independents that caucus with the Democrats, and then they have the vice president, Kamala Harris, who can serve as the tiebreaker. So technically, they don't even have a majority. And Mitch McConnell is basically arguing you shouldn't be able to just go do whatever you want, pass all this legislation when you have, you know, not even a majority in the Senate. So his argument is that preserving the filibuster would protect um, the minority party in that way. 
And so let's talk about a couple of merits um, to this argument. The idea that the filibuster promotes deliberation and that the Senate is supposed to be the more deliberative body. That is true. Um, the Senate is referred to as the upper chamber or the upper house for a couple of reasons. One, they are the chamber furthest removed from the people. So when the Constitution was written, they were not directly elected. They were uh, elected by state senators. Uh, it wasn't until the 17th Amendment that we began electing our senators. They also serve for six years, whereas the House of Representatives only serve for two years. So they go longer in between having to campaign. And what this means is they are able to be more deliberative. So the House of Representatives was thought to be the chamber that would be most responsive to their constituents, whereas the Senate would be the chamber that could be more deliberative. And, you know, weren't quite as subject to the everyday whims of public opinion. So that part of it I agree with. And when we had the talking filibuster pre-1970, I do think that it lent itself to helping the Senate be more deliberative. Um, even if a filibuster wasn't successful, it allowed for you know time to kind of sit back, listen to speeches, listen to arguments. It allowed for time to educate the public about a particular piece of legislation. And I do think that it effectively contributed to the uh, deliberative body of the Senate. In its current form, though, the, you know, not, not having to hold the floor anymore, not having to continue debate, and essentially not being accountable at all for um, filibustering, um, to me, that just doesn't promote deliberation at all. It doesn't promote discourse um, in its current form. And the other argument that McConnell made is that it is a protection for the minority party and it contributes to bipartisanship. And I would actually agree with that as well. Again, if we're talking about the talking filibuster pre-1970s. Um, it does promote bipartisanship. If you have a narrow majority, it ensures that you have to at least get a few members from across the aisle on board with your legislation, uh, thus promoting bipartisanship. Um, in its current form, again, though, I'm not certain that it does promote bipartisanship. Um, people kind of take their cues from their respective party leaders, fall in line. There isn't much debate. Um, there isn't a whole lot of um, of senators that you know go against their party. We we see a lot more votes on party lines, and in its current form, I just don't think that these arguments hold true. Some other ideas, other than completely eliminating the filibuster, one is returning to the talking filibuster, changing the rules to return to that um, pre nineteen seventy two track system in which senators are held accountable for their filibusters, it holds up all other Senate business, and you're required to hold the floor. This is the reform that I personally am in favor of. Um, it would still provide for deliberation, bipartisanship, um, discussion, discourse, um, but it would move away from this dysfunctional feature of the Senate where you essentially need a supermajority to get absolutely anything done. And then a third option that has kind of lost water over the years 
But nevertheless, um, another suggestion is gradually lowering the threshold to invoke cloture by three votes every time a cloture vote fails. So this would encourage the party filibustering uh, to, you know, want to invoke cloture because if they don't, if a cloture vote uh, a cloture vote fails, then the threshold to invoke cloture the next time is going to be reduced by three until you get back to that simple majority. So this would have some similar effects. You know, it would it would promote, I think, deliberation. It would promote. Uh, discourse. It would give the minority party reason to want to compromise. Um, but overall, I think returning to the talking filibuster is is the best reform uh, suggested of the three. Um, holding senators accountable for their filibusters, I think, would be highly effective. This has been episode four of Government Girl. I wanted to cite a few sources that I used to collect information for this episode. Um, the book Kill Switch is a deep dive into the filibuster and its history, and I highly recommend it. It is a very good book, and I did pull some information from that book for this episode. The um, Wikipedia page for the filibuster I pulled some information from, and the Reuters article, What is the U.S. Senate Filibuster and Why is Everyone Talking About It? I also want to thank my AP U.S. History Arguments page and my AP GoPo, GoPo Discussions page on Facebook. Uh, the folks on there are always willing to indulge my questions and help me fact check when I'm working on these episodes. So a special thank you to them as well. Remember, if you have any questions about this episode, anything that I left hanging unanswered, or suggestions for another episode, please tweet me at govgirl614. Thank you.